Aloha and welcome to another episode of the Sandwich Islands Network podcast, where we give you a taste of contemporary Hawaii in music and programming. We are local transplants living in Southern California who have moved from our island home and have brought with us the local flavor and vibe of the islands. Kaden, you ready? Here we go with another episode of the Samridge Islands Network Podcast. This is the Sandwich Islands Network. V93FM is the Sandwich Islands Network.com. V93FM.com. Aloha. Mauna Kea Now is sponsored by Hawaii. A Voice for Sovereignty, a documentary film by photojournalist Catherine Bachnight that explores the culture of the native Hawaiians and their connection to the land. At the forefront of the film are social, economical, and ecological issues that have developed in Hawaii since the takeover by the U.S. in 1893, revealed in interviews with grassroots indigenous people and scholars such as author Haunani K. Trask. The documentary's goal is to raise awareness of the issues faced by the Native Hawaiians, which threatens their ancient and environmentally sustainable culture. Bach Knight brings this film to the world stage by theatrical release, screenings at international film festivals, and television programming. More information at hawaiiavoiceforsovereignty.com. Aloha, this is Kamaka Braun of the Sandwich Island Network Radio. In early 2015, we began to chronicle the activities of Protect Mauna Kea by interviewing Principal Kanaka Maole, who are actively protecting the mountain and monitoring the construction efforts of TMT. We called our recorded segments Mauna Kea Now. TMT, the acronym for 30-meter telescope, planned an observatory with an extremely large telescope, and this has become the source of controversy over its planned location on Mauna Kea in the state of Hawaii. Construction of the TMT on land, which is considered sacred to native Hawaiian culture and religion, attracted international coverage after October 2014 when construction was temporarily halted voluntarily due to protests. While construction of the telescope was set to resume on April 2nd of 2015 and later on June 24th of 2015, it was blocked by further protests each time, and it was approved by the Board of Land and Natural Resources. On December 2, 2015, the Supreme Court of Hawaii invalidated the TMT's building permits, ruling that due process was not followed when the Board of Land and Natural Resources approved the permit before the contested case hearing. The TMT company chairman stated, quote, TMT will follow the processes set forth by the state, unquote. On December 16, 2015, the TMT Corporation began removal of all construction equipment and vehicles from Mauna Kea.
Sandwich Islands Network Radio now presents a series of interviews and conversations recorded during 2015, featuring individuals actively protecting Mauna Kea and monitoring the efforts of TMT. Here now is our first rebroadcast featuring Catherine Bachnight, filmmaker, Hawaii, a voice for sovereignty, Dr. Paul Coleman, professor, astronomy department, UH Manoa, Joshua Lanakila Managuil, teacher and Hawaiian activist, Michael Lee, native Hawaiian cultural practitioner, Mikilani Young, Kumuhula, and Walter Riddy, a legendary Hawaiian activist and one of the Koho'olawe Nine. Recordings were made on May 25th, 2015. Aloha, welcome back to the Sin Crew Radio Show. Kamaka Brown with the Sin Crew. Uncle Dan Legron here from TheExaminer.com. What's up? I am here. I notice, I notice, and you're looking quite debonair today. Oh, I love being here with you guys. Oh, you, you know? You're just a wizard with words, it man. It makes my month. <laughs> oh, Are you no. saying once you've been with us, you're good for a month? <laughs> uh, Uncle Clinton is over here, our resident foodie. Yeah, we'll talk about food later on. We will. We definitely will. Thank you so much uh, for being with us here as well. Catherine Bachnight, uh, filmmaker and uh, just a, you know, in another life, uh, Catherine uh, came from a, a tiny village uh, in uh, somewhere in the... the uh, in Europe? Uh, no, <laughs> from an island uh, somewhere oh. in the tropics. Absolutely. Must be. Must be. <laughs> yeah, I did. Welcome aboard, uh, Catherine. And um, we, uh, we, we look forward to all kinds of great conversation today. Yeah, thank you. It's great to be here, Kamanka. I'm looking forward to it as well. So, uh, hello, Paul. How are you? Uh, very good. Um, okay, so uh, I just want to tell you a little bit about Paul. He is um, Paul Coleman, and he is an astronomer at the University of Hawaii and is a graduate at St. Louis High School. He received his Ph.D. from University of Pittsburgh while working for the National Radio Astronomy Observatory. After receiving his doctorate, he was a visiting assist assistant for professor at, at Virginia Tech. He then accepted a position at Capetian Astronomical Institute in Groningen, the Netherlands, um, spending eight years there on the scientific staff. He returned to the United States holding appointments with the, uh, New Mexico Tech, Yale University, and the University of Puerto Rico before accepting his position as an associate astronomer at the University of Hawaii Institute of Astronomy. Dr. Coleman's research interests are in astrogalactic astronomy and cosmology. Uh, being a Kanaka Maoli, he is also has an interest in natural interest in all things Hawaiian, with a particular focus on astronomy. So we're very lucky to have you here with us today. So uh, one of the things that we are so interested in over here is Mauna Kea. So can you please explain to us um, about your research there <clears throat> and uh, how it relates to astrogalactical studies? Oh, okay. Well, um, the field of extragalactic astronomy is a, is a pretty big field, and 
I've always been interested in looking at the brightest things that are possible to look at at the furthest distance that you can actually look at them. So I'm constantly looking extragalactic, meaning outside of our galaxy. So I've used quite a bit of time talking and working on things like quasars, which are the bright cores of galaxies, and looking at them as far back in time and in space as I possibly can. Okay. Um, do you um, do you believe that um, this relates to the uh, telescope that would be on Mauna Kea? Is that uh, something that you are working on directly? I primarily now my mission is in teaching and uh, public outreach. Since I'm a native Hawaiian astronomer, I'm a natural role model for uh, kids here, but. Um, I would love to get my hands on uh, the TMT because it actually allows us to go uh, ten times deeper into the universe than we can with our current technology telescopes. So it will, in fact, open up um, a huge part of the universe to my research. Um, is, it, is it true that uh, the telescope would possibly go into uh, an area that tells us the beginning of the universe? Is that Correct. Well, if, if you look at what we think is the timeline for the universe, it starts with a big bang, the universe expands, uh, cools as it expands, and then goes through these sort of phases. And we can actually look back at the universe and out, out and back, um, out to a certain point in the universe, and then you can't go any further. I liken it often to being in a smoke-filled room. At that point, the universe is like a smoke-filled room, and photons just can't travel anywhere. But as the universe expands, we get past the smoke-filled room stage, and it's at that point, which is called the decoupling era, where matter and radiation decouple, become separate things, that um, if we can actually, with this new telescope, the 30-meter look right out to that decoupling uh, epoch. Uh, so in fact, I often say, if everything works well with the TMT, we'll be able to see as much of the universe as we possibly can. That is amazing. Uh, and are there particular uh, questions that you want answered? I, I, I'm sure there's, uh, it's really infinite, but are there particular uh, things that you are looking for? Uh, once you are able to see into that area? Well, looking into that area, for me, I, you get to see the first time when stars actually form. Um, what happened? How did that you know, go about? Uh, then also, uh, a little bit later in time, you can see when galaxies first formed, which is also very important and very cool uh, place to be looking. But for me, it's not my own research, but I also look forward to the results that come out of the TMT about life on other planets and finding other planets that are perhaps more Earth-like than Jupiter-like. One thing that I think is very interesting, and maybe you can answer this question, is uh, the things that you are looking to see, uh, the timeline, is it correct that those, those things obviously have already happened? Is that, that's correct, right? Yes, they, they, they happened uh, a long time ago in the past, but in astronomy that's also the same 
as saying they happened a long time, a long distance away. So, you know, as Einstein said, time and space are related, and in this case it's very uh, evident. And so the deeper we look into the universe, the further back in time we're looking. Um, that is, is truly amazing. I can understand why you would be interested in doing this. And are there any other interests that you have um, uh, that you're working on in your research right now? Well, we have a kind of a, a non-standard model of the universe. It's called the, the fractal universe. And I have been working on it, but I've, I've had to put it aside from these more pressing, immediate things. But I would also like to continue looking into that particular cosmological model of the universe. Um, and can you just explain briefly what the fractal universe is? Sure. It's, uh, the idea is that, uh, well, the current idea of the universe is that it's this homogeneous distribution of matter on some large enough scale. But the fractal universe would say that the universe never becomes homogeneous, that it, in fact, is always, there's always clustering on some scale. And if you go to a larger length scale, you see more clustering. Um, so it's, a, it's a, a model that can be tested by direct observation, by just looking to deeper and deeper samples or bigger and bigger structures in the universe and seeing whether or not they eventually go away. If they eventually go away, then the fractal model is wrong. But if they continue to show up, so we see clusters and superclusters and super-duper clusters and grandos, super-duper clusters, and, you know, whatever, whatever uh, sizing you want to use from Starbucks, um, you, if that continues, then the fractal model is, is possibly true. Okay. Um, and can you tell us what the significance is of having uh, the 30-meter telescope there on Mauna Kea? Well, I, I really, uh, from a cultural perspective, I'm, I'm not the same as the folks who are against it. I think it fits quite well into our cultural tradition. I, I believe the defining characteristic of Hawaiians is that they're all astronomers. I mean, our queen said this in print, so who am I to argue with the queen? But um, So because I believe it's a defining characteristic, what I really think it has to happen is we have to get more people, more of our people in, on board with this, on, as uh, become part of the effort. Um, make, make modern astronomy also a fundamental part of our modern life, just as old astronomy was a fundamental part of the old Hawaiian's life. Okay. Um, um, is there a, a, a special reason that Mauna Kea is the um, prime location for the telescope? Uh, its positioning. Um, I, I mean, I'm just. I just like to know what what that is because obviously it it seems very important. Yes. Uh, um, there are many reasons why Mauna Kea is really the best site on Earth for telescopes to be put, for, for Earth ground-based telescopes to be put. Uh, one of them is that we are out in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, which is this tremendous, you know, the Pacific Ocean is approximately the same temperature all year round, so we're sitting in the middle of a, a controlled temperature environment, which means that the winds that flow are usually pretty predictable. They come in from certain directions at certain times of the year. 
And um, the mountain itself, or the, the island itself, is a shield volcano. And a shield volcano is a nice, smooth thing. So those winds, they blow in a nice, smooth way over the top of the mountain. And for us as astronomers, the, the killer in taking good images is if the atmosphere gets all turbulent or roiled up or, or, or boils frothily, like how you know the waves hit the last part of the uh, shore. If, it, if it's like that, then we're kind of in trouble. It's much more difficult to get very uh, good pictures of the universe. So there's that fact that the atmosphere flows over in a very nice sort of smooth way. And then the fact that the, the uh, mountain is so tall, it's above the cloud level. And there's a nightly inversion thing that goes on that pushes the clouds down off the top of the mountain. It's as if uh, it, the, the mountain was really made for astronomy. The clouds get out of the way. Uh, <laughs> there's very low water vapor. It's very high altitude. Uh, on a place where the uh, wind flows over in predominantly nice ways, uh, it's, as I say, the perfect spot for astronomy on Earth. Okay, thank you for that. Uh, so being a Kanakamoli, does it... Um, do you think that your culture affects your interest in uh, working uh, with your research now? Have you have you been um, interested in this? Was your interest in this from your culture? Do you believe? Well, I I don't know if that's the case because I certainly didn't learn enough as a as a child. We were, I'm a child of the non charter school generations, so we didn't have. Uh, all Hawaiian-speaking schools or places where you could go to get a, immersed in, in culture like the immersion school programs. But I think what I realized as a young man was that Hawaiians were fantastic natural scientists. That the only way you get to be out here in the middle of the Pacific Ocean is if you understand the ebb and flow of the world around you. And so that always struck me, and I, and I have always been a very good observer. Um, so I, uh, it just is a natural uh, extension of who I am as a Kanaka Maoli that I, I am a good observer. I'm a, uh, you know, a pretty good natural scientist, and it just all sort of helped to push me in the direction I went. And by the way, I never my primary direction wasn't astronomy. I was actually more interested in physics, which is the application of mathematics to the science that you see around you. I was always interested in that because I was kind of interested in how things worked. Very interesting. So uh, once uh, the telescope is uh, really uh, built, then about how long do you think you would start getting answers from your research? Oh, well, it, of course it's a... A very competitive thing. If the telescope is built, then I will have to write a really great proposal and beat out all the other people who are trying for the time on the telescope. But um, some of these answers will be answered right away. I mean, uh, there will be um, scientific questions. If they're well posed, they'll be answered in the first observing run. But what we can always look forward to, it always is true, is that when you start to answer uh, questions, new questions come up. Um, and as I point out often, uh, when the Space Telescope was being built, they had a, 
a top ten list of things they wanted to look into. And clearly about half of the new things that they found were things that were not even on the list. So with the TMT, we look forward to just uh, basically answering some of our questions that we have now, but also just being wowed by the, the diversity of fantastic things that start showing up. So um, you mentioned that you have children, right? Young children? Yes, yes. So uh, do you believe that uh, the telescope will uh, change their future for the better? I certainly hope so. And I'm, I'm a person who's lived this, this business of being educated to leave. Um, we, in Hawaii, we're constantly stressing some of the things that I think are probably not the right things to stress. Um, we don't spend enough time on volcanology. We don't spend enough time on oceanography. We don't spend enough time in astronomy in our, in our elementary and high school education. And so we're essentially teaching the children skills that are better suited for the mainland than here. And I would like to have it that children don't have to leave here to get a good uh, job in, say, the technology fields or something like that. I, I, I would really like us to take advantage of the things that, are, that we are really good at, uh, sustainable living, things like that, that, where we can actually make those into, into, into futures for our children. That is wonderful. Thank you so much. And um, I appreciate that coming from a parent. That's, that's great and well said. So uh, I think that we are going to uh, have to wrap this up. And we've really enjoyed the information that you've shared with us and, and so early in the morning, too. Thank you so much, Paul. No problem. As you say, I'm a parent, so I'm used to getting up really early <laughs> to get the kids out of school. Okay. All right. Well, um, aloha and have a great day. Well, thank you, and you folks have a good day, too. Simon John and Network Radio, V93FM.com with uh, Dan Legronier from TheExaminer.com. Welcome. Thank you. Yeah, hey, you're, looking, you're looking very astute today. Astute. Astute, astute yeah. A-S-T-O-O-T. <laughs> astute. Astute. That's a, that's a Filipino word. word. <laughs> I think you just confused him. Oh, no. <laughs> Uncle Clinton is here, our resident foodie. He brought um, Kaloa Pig and Cabbage today. We're going to grind. I'm looking astute, too. Uh, no, <laughs> you're different, Brian. Yeah, can we withhold comment on what you oh, look like? Dear. <laughs> you are there. I'm sorry, Polilia is being very naughty today. She I'm is. sorry. She's our delicious, and we are delighted to have her on board. As always, as part of our sin crew, she brings a sense of sanity, believe it or not, to the entire craziness <laughs> going on. Depending on, on your definition of sanity, <laughs> Uncle. Uh, our guest in the studio here is uh, filmmaker. Catherine Bachnight. Aloha, Catherine. Aloha. How are you? I'm good. Okay. Um, we are very, very honored to have today with us Joshua Lanakila Manguel. And uh, aloha. How are you? Aloha. Aloha, mate. Okay. So, uh, you are uh, a Hawaiian studies teacher and a practitioner, 
and uh, you are actually you are becoming the go-to person for the issues that are happening there on Mauna Kea. So we just uh, are looking very forward to finding out uh, a lot of updated information as to what's going on there. Um, so let's just go right into it because um, so many things are coming out on the news right now. And uh, so, so first, um, can you tell us how long you have been on the mountain protecting the mountain? Uh, well, I, I believe right now, gosh, what day is this? Uh, the stand has been uh, going now for, I think this is the 57th day. Wow. If I'm not mistaken. Um, I myself now, actually, more recently in the past couple of weeks, um, the, the battles kind of moved off the mountain and into the meeting rooms. So uh -huh. I've been having to come up and down the mountain quite a bit lately and um, finding myself, I want to get to run up there for a day and then come back down and go to another meeting. So. But it's been continuously held, and um, the line is being held in the mountain protected for, I, I believe, it's the 57th day. That, that is really amazing. And, um, Lena Keela, you told me uh, once uh, when we were speaking that time ceases to exist after a while. Can you speak to that a little bit up there on the mountain? No, what was that? You told me once that time ceases to exist on the mountain after a oh. while. Can you speak to that? Oh, yeah. yeah so it's hard to kind of keep track. The only reason we kind of know is there's one, there's one girl on the mountain who she keeps up on her Facebook page every day. She puts the number and she, she kind of shares about what happens. That's the only way I've been able to keep track of time. <laughs> um, but so when, you're really, when, you're, when we're up there, um, for myself, it, it really is, yeah, when you, just like time just kind of seems to be uh, it's not an issue. It's not something that we're running, uh, running around for constantly uh, according to the time. It really is mountain time, I guess you could say. But, um, and, you know, mountain time, a mountain is forever. So it's, I guess, how do you, I'm not sure how else to explain it. It's just like really, I guess it's more in the sense that there is no need for a conventional understanding of time. Like there's a consciousness that we have all the time because <laughs> there's no time. That's great. <laughs> I guess in a way. <laughs> that is really great. And, uh, you know, we've heard so much about um, the spiritual connection there at Mauna Kea um, and uh, how special it is. And so do you feel that when you're there? Do you see that? Do you, um, do you actually have a connection with the spirituality of uh ancient culture and ancient wisdom oh of course of course and we're in these areas it's uh, you know you can just feel the vibration in this space and you know whether it be um spiritual or physical of, of, or just being in that place you know being up at those elevations your body we realize are are uh you're humbled in in several ways, in the awe of the mountain, but also in the in the, in the might of the mountain, and just the sense of how it can literally take your breath away, how uh, how the human body really is at even up in this area. We are really, really um, how would you say fragile to to the power of that of that energy up there, um, and uh, you know it's been interesting the past few days. Um, 
actually past, in the past couple of weeks now, uh, sometimes when uh, I'm up on the mountain, um, standing up on the pools, or even when I wake up in the morning, I swear we can, there's so much people in the world right now, and even in Hawaii, who and people I've talked to who are like every day, they're focused, whether they focus their prayers, they will face toward the mountain, or they know they just project their prayers to the mountain, everyone's even people I've, you know, that I know in my life, I know that they're not like Pule people. They're not really, you know, uh, people who, who speak about praying or doing no kind of stuff. Just right now are being drawn to face the mountain and, and just to express it and send their energy. And I swear, so many times on the mountain, I don't only just hear or feel the mount, the might of the mountain, but there's, a, there's an energy coming from the people. And I swear sometimes in the morning, especially... I can hear the murmur of the prayers on the wind. And there's so much energy is being directed towards the people, towards the mountain right now. It's, it's, I can feel the prayers and I can hear, so I can hear them on the wind. That uh, is a very good um, uh, explanation of how the land and people and all living things are connected, isn't it? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, there's, there's something about mountain <laughs> that really helps to lift the human spirit um, to stand stronger, to stand uh, to stand firm. And so the relationship that one has with the mountain um, is really a reflection of how they can stand for themselves. Wow, that's interesting. So, um, so up there, um, how do you feel that... Um, or why do you feel that it's so uh, imperative and you are so passionate to protect Mauna Kea? It's a very big question. I kind of explained at um, a presentation uh, the other day in Laupohoihoi. Um, I'm uh, trying to put it forth this way. You know, we have, we have a term in, in Hawaii called makawalu. It's, it's it's something that's been revived and it's really kind of taken a core. I, I find it, I see it in, in a lot of teaching styles now. But Makavalu literally translates to eight eyes. But what that is, it's the idea of of being able to see things through multiple layers, to be able for an individual to look at something through multiple perspectives and see all the ins and the outs and, and take it deeper and understanding and, and other, yeah, basically deeper and more levels of, of, of something. And I share, you know, what is the creature that bears the eight eyes? It is the spider. The spider weaves the web, and the web is all interconnected. So really, our stand for the mountain is interconnected to many, many different things. I mean, there is the, cult, the strong um, cultural beliefs um, that we have to the mountain, but then there's really there is an actual science behind the cultural beliefs um, as to why we engage, how we engage with the mountain. And it's something, and a lot of these kind of things, these are things that, um, that a lot of humanity, but even here in Hawaii, we were stripped away from. You know, our, our ancestors were really torn away from these kind of practices and this kind of thinking and, and thought that this, that this was not, that that wasn't proper ways of being and such. And in that short amount of time where we've been pulled and disconnected, you know, we've seen, you know, anyone can just open their eyes 
and you you see all over the world, but even here in Hawaii, the devastation that that brought, where through this different way of, of thinking and observing and being part and interconnected with our 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 moku, our land, um, we were able to thrive in this land. We didn't just survive; we thrived, um, and the land thrived with us. Um, and so there's a lot of um, along with the you know there's a political it's connected to a, to a deep politics whether you want to take it back to Hawaiian Kingdom issues or even just into corrupt politi- uh, politics um, and law bending in under American law even as 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 we see it uh, as really you just look at the laws in this situation even in the American laws this mountain should not be in the state that it's in. There should never have been any development on the mountain in the first place. So, so um, we really there's, there's a respect that goes to the mountain because, in the consciousness of people who live here, and, and the, well, I guess not some people still sleeping, but um, also in the understanding of our cultural, our cultural beliefs, there is an understanding of how the mountain brings life to so much of Hawaii. And so, you know, from the point of just being a mountain that stops the clouds and lifts the clouds and allows, captures the water that, that, that feeds this island, well, then we respect this mountain. And so really we look at the mountain as like a person. So what can the mount, you know, is it proper to be gouging at the top of the mountain? You know, to, our, to our traditions, it's not. You know, this mountain already has its purpose and its function that brings life to us. And right now it's just being used as a platform, as a stepping stool for something else, uh, and not maintained and not protected as it should be. Um, you know, I share with a lot of people, I know there's a lot of, well, people, if you think Hawaii is beautiful now, there's a lot of people fly in like, oh, you know, it's really beautiful here. In a lot of places, all I can say is, you know, you're really looking at complete devastation. So much of Hawaii is not as it's supposed to be. You know, there's um, even like by, by a great example example is people really know the the beautiful rolling pasture hills of Waimea that go all the way back to the mountains and it looks beautiful but if you understand if you look into the stories of our people and even the history and the ecology of this land all of that land that's all this wide open beautiful pastures about 150 years ago yeah. was all forest. So, I mean, there's such um, immense devastation happening, but people are just seeing the surface and seeing what they think is the beauty, but which is actually devastation and not seeing what the health of the land is supposed to be at. So the interconnectedness of why we're standing for this mountain is, it stands for many different reasons. Our cultural beliefs, there is our environmental um, uh, understandings of the mountain. There is a lot of political... Um, and legal issues um, going on in the mountain. Okay. Um, you know, you. Um, I know that you have talked about the importance of the water there uh, coming from the top of the mountain. Can you tell us just a little bit about that, how it's such a, a vortex for water and uh not only on the outside, but the inside and, and the rivers at the bottom, streams as uh, well? Sure. So, um, well, I'll check in the next show. Uh, in, even in tradi- traditionally, um, our stories of the mountain 
is really much connected to the water cycle. It is the water cycle. It, that is our water cycle from this whole society is based upon because of this mountain. Um, and even the, the deities that we see that live on this mountain, the the, this, the snow, the, the, the lake, the, the mist, the, the springs, there's all the deities formed. So right there, the gods who dwell on this mountain are all water gods. Um, and so that's why the mountain is aqua. So for us, what we consider in our tongue to be... Um, so, um, for us, when, we, when you use the term aqua, the, only, the closest thing in English language they could give was God, which is still not proper. It's a proper it, it invokes the, the incorrect um, picture of what we see. But aqua are these things in the mountain that help to bring us life. And one of the biggest things in all the stories of this mountain is the water. Now, you go, um, uh, you look at the mountain now, you know, we see it as the crown of the watershed. And the water and the snow and the ice that sits there, it percolates into the mountain and is able to, you know, that's like all groundwater. That's how we have groundwater. It starts from these places like here. And so from the Mount, from Mount Awakea, it is percolating down deep into the ground. And so we have springs that shoot off um even up at around almost 9,000 feet, there's Kopokani Spring um, on one side of the mountain. So you know that there's there's movement of water within the mountain. Um, and so with that, I'm thinking it, it's just basic understanding of knowing gravity. Um, and, and our stories, uh, you know, basically whatever you do on the top is just going to roll on down. And in our stories, um, the mountain was actually kapu. It was um, it was forbidden at a time for mortals as uh, for, to actually enter into this realm, and, um, and part of that, when we look at when we when we understand the stories through other ways, um, in the story Kani um, does not want any mortal to defile his daughter, which is the snow. What that is, what that uh, translates into, is human beings have a tendency to make a mess of things, and so we do not take our our mess and contaminate the highest source of waters which should be the, the pristine, pure waters, which is the snow and the ice on the crown of the mountains, um, because the idea that all that's going to flow down. Now, you look into some of the things, like I know TMT has claimed that they've already done all the water studies and it's not going to do anything um, <coughs> to the water. Uh, well, one thing is we found there has actually never been a, hi- a comprehensive hydrological study of the mountain. So really, they're operating on just a couple little water projects here and there as their inf- as their um, as their data, but there has never been a comprehensive study, nor has there ever been a construction of this size. Um, now, they, they, they say that the bottom of TMT is going to be, uh, I guess, lined. They're going to put like a double-walled tank or some uh, storage container uh, for for waste um, under the building. It's supposed to hold up to 5,000, or I think that they're, this, they're estimating they're going to be producing some 5,000 gallons of waste on the mountain, whether it be hazardous material and sewage. Um, so in that case, okay, you guys are taking a step, but you're still playing you're playing uh, Russian roulette with our aquifer. I mean, there's earthquakes all the time. You're going to build an underground bunker, cemented. You could easily crack, and then you have leakage. And if that's not the case, then the matter of, they're going to be trucking down, then they're going to be pumping and trucking every week sewage and, and, and hazardous 
or material down the mountain that now puts the whole the whole area at risk. Wherever that truck goes is now at risk, especially going down this treacherous mountain road. That we have seen trucks and things slip on this road many times. So if one of these vehicles were to flip over such, we could see a major um, uh, contamination of of an area with, with all this waste. Lanakila, we're going every week putting at risk. Lanakila, we're going to jump in um, right now, yeah. uh, just a little bit, take a small kind break, as we say, and uh, we'll be right back. Um, please uh, hang on, and we will stop for station identification and stuff like that. We'll be right back on the Simon Jamal Network Radio V ninety three FM dot com. Aloha, this is Puni Patrick from the Garden Isle of Kauai, and you are listening to the Sandwich Islands Network Radio. All right. The Sandwich Islands Network is V93FM.com. The Sandwich Islands Network. Aloha. Back on the Sandwich Island Network Radio, V93FM.com, with Catherine Bachnine, film director, uh, filmmaker, and uh, she has uh, on our phone uh, uh, Lana Kila from the Big Island, and we're talking about the Protect Mauna Kea Initiative. Um, okay, so some of the hazards you were, you were saying, uh, some of the hazards are the trucks that uh, are carrying things up and down the mountain uh, that are hazardous to the mountain. Uh, can you continue with that, please? Oh, oh just that, that, that that's one of the big risks, is now that you know all this waste is every week there will be a truck uh, coming up and then pumping up and carrying all this waste that now puts all the way along this, this drive, even off the mountain. You know, anything could happen that we're carrying hazardous waste in these trucks like this. But... Um, so for, for, for a lot of us, it's like we don't want to risk it. You know, what, we don't see the, the benefits that they list and they share about this, this construction does not outweigh the risk of, of, of our natural resources. And then it all kind of just still comes back to I'm still trying to get a wrap, wrap my head around whoever could possibly have allowed something like this in a forest all the development of the mountain in a conservation zone. And that's a very big, important thing we want to make sure that the, everyone understands. The Mauna Wakea is zoned as conservation land. Conservation yeah. to conserve. So all the way back in the 1960s, when the University of Hawaii took on the lease, as far as I'm concerned or understand, when you take on a lease in a particular zone, you have to abide by the zoning laws like everybody else. So... They acquired the lease for conservation land. They and, did. And, no, their first actions immediately was not to conserve, but to, this, but to figure out how to develop. And the first roads were carved into the mountain, and the very first telescope was put up. And it was a very small telescope. <coughs> um, I don't... Um, again, I, I, I'm, not, I'm not completely well-versed in all the history, but I do believe that there was opposition even then. 
um, uh-huh. about putting anything on the mountain. Yeah. And then they built another, and they built another, and as we found out, the first three telescopes on the mountain were built without even pulling permits, without even pulling building permits. Now, they're cracked on anybody if you just tried to build a little shelter or a little garage in the back of your property that can get on you about zoning laws and uh, get on you about um, building permits. But yet, these three telescopes up on the mountain were built without even having um, uh, permits. They didn't even get their permits till later. And then they continue to build and continue to build and continue and continue. Now, right now, there's currently 13 telescopes, as they say, on the mountain now. But there's actually 20, I think it's 22 or 23 different structures to support structures with this um, on the mountain now. I mean, you look on this mountain, when you stand up there and you look across the, the summit, and you, you can only think to yourself, how does anyone ever look at this and be able to come up with any excuse that that is considered conservation, which is the zoning law. It's conservation, man. It's developed. It's one of the most urban-looking places up there. So Uh the biggest buildings on our island is up on top of this sacred mountain in conservation land. So, you know, this is for us. Our our biggest stand at this point is there should be no more development at all on the mountain. There's already so much damage. And you can look at all the, the studies that have come out um, looking at the, the effects of, of the development on the mountain, and they all say, even the NASA one states that the astronomy, um, the astronomy constructions that have been done on the mountain have been adverse and detrimental to the mountain. Okay. So uh, that's kind of our thing is, like, you know what, we're sick of this world and how generations before us have, have allowed, not allowed, but are not able to be heard. You know, our kupuna and people have fought to protect this mountain. Every single telescope that went up had um, opposition. And this is, again, this is the last straw. Considering all that's already been done in the mountain has shown adverse impact on the mountain. And now the, this, this construction is bigger than all of them and bigger than a lot, most of them up there combined. Aole, no can. Enough. So... So who is responsible uh, in your research for allowing construction to be built there on the land of conservation? As we look at it, it really is um, on BNR, Board of Land Natural Resources, basically not doing their job and allowing these kind of things. You hear a lot of these things just rubber stamped and just slid in. And they basically, there's the eight criteria um, that need to be abided by before granting any types of permits within conservation zones, um, any kind of anything. And it, and so PNNR, looking at this project, they decide, oh, no, if it meets all the criteria, step it, pass it through. I'm still waiting for one of these fools to, ask, to try and explain to me how uh, bulldozing an eight-square-acre pad, a building that's 1.4 acres big, that has a footing some three stories into the ground, 18 stories into the sky, does not permanently alter the terrain. That's a big hole. And yeah. part of the conservation um, laws or permitting laws or zone, uh, criteria is that whatever, whatever is done on, in the conservation zone has to be able to be restored back to its natural state. You cannot, they cannot repair the lava flow. 
so therefore it should not be done in the first place. And it's, you just, I've, it shocks me, because for me, there's two things. Either it shows the level of corruption in the government, or it shows the level of uneducated people in those seats to be able to just make these decisions that any third grader could com- compare and contrast the rules to be followed on the mountain, that the, the, the conservation rules, I compare it to the project and can tell you that it does not fit. In fact, none of the telescopes fit. I don't know how you can restore the cinder cone to its natural state. And, and there's a lot of those kind of things. So that's, the, from us, it's really, it goes back to BNR, that you know, by the state mess up, they should not have granted the permit in the first place but they're just passing it along. Um, they keep allowing these things. Um, that's where I feel some of the worst corruption is really at that level, that, you know, that they're just granting these permits. And now, as it's kind of been explained to me at one point, it's one of the big reasons the state doesn't want to really act because, oh, well, we granted them the permit, so we can't go back and change that, as if the state is infallible. You know, it's like it cannot be wrong. Well, you know what? The state's been wrong a lot. Yeah. So... Um if if they do start construction, uh, if they attempt to start construction, what what uh, options do you have at this point? Um, well, what we're doing right now, uh, well, no matter what, the guard is on the mountain, and they're not going up. Um, so even with that, they're not going. We have a crew. There's always a crew on the mountain watching, and we have access to through social media and other things. All it takes is a call, and we have thousands of people coming to guard the mountain. So even if they try to push us their way up there, they're going to be met by many. Um, but within trying to work within the corrupt legal system, um, we're trying to encourage... Well, one of the first things is the current administration right now, uh, the governor's in the, um, administration, is very new. They only got in. He's only been in office for five, six months now. Right. So we're trying to update them. We need them to be able to edu- be educated about what's going on. And for us, it's really about having them relook at a lot of these things with fresh eyes, and also not just with fresh eyes, but knowing that everyone, the massive people's attention is on this. Um, so we are asking um, for the government office uh, to to either look back over, uh, they're looking to reopen the, the, I think there's a 100-day period that they can reopen on the EIS, Environmental Impact Statement, that is being done for the lease renewal. Um, University of Hawaii is trying to renew their lease, which would give them an additional 65 years on the mountain, um, basically giving them almost 140 years of domain on the mountain. Um, but in this case, uh, we're looking for them to be able to reopen that because uh, and you can check all the studies that have been done. The University of Hawaii has completely failed as being proper stewards of the mountain. And in that case, um, that's why we're, as a, as a way of you know trying to stop this, this construction, if University of Hawaii um, loses its lease, which basically their lease runs out in 2033, then it'd be really up to um, up to the TMT is like, do you really want to invest $1.4 billion into a project that you're going to have to build? And then by the time it's done being built, you have to start decommissioning it mm-hmm. uh, because your lease runs out in, in 2033. They're not even estimating the telescope to be 
or what would be finished in 2000, what do you say, I think uh, 2020, I was sorry, I think it was 2022 or 2025, I think. Um, so really, you'd have to start decommissioning ready. So we're already looking at the idea that if, again, now we're trying to trust that they're actually going to follow the law, but should the lease be blocked and not renewed, then the mountain, by, by the law, is yeah, everybody who's on the mountain now has to decommission and move off. Um, that's just that's that's the system. We're not going to push that. That's just what it is. Um, and so definitely we are looking to have the state um, really be able to go back and, and question the history and the of the UH's mismanagement of our mountain. Um, and yeah, basically that's. That, that's one of the first ones. So it is quite an interesting legal game. And again, I'm never, I will not admit to being a person who understands all of that. There's many people who have been involved with this, and it's been fought in court. Every telescope's been fought in court for years and years and years. And so there's a lot of other people um, um, that um, <coughs> that um, would know much more, especially about the legal issues and stuff um, that's happening on the mountain. Um, so. Uh, but I know that's something that uh, a personal, uh, well, not personal, but uh, it's one of the things that I'm focusing on is helping with um, the EIS or, or bringing forth the truth on the EIS. Okay. Um, you referred to yourself and people that are on the mountain as the next generation um, and your concerns. Can you uh, tell me a little bit more about that? Uh, well, it's really is that there were... Um, we are, um, um, yeah, most, most everybody that's, that's stepped up right now and are a part of this movement, most of us are in our early 20s to our um, early 30s. Um, there's just, there's, uh, just a lot of young young people on this. And really what that is, too, is we, are, we finally have found our, our kuleana, I guess you could say, our responsibility as many of us, too, were, were products of the Hawaiian education system. I, myself, I graduated from Kanoka'ina, the whole first of the Hawaiian charter school movement. And, um, and yet, so we, um, you know, we were the ones who were blessed with the hard work that um, our, our elders and our parents' generation did to fight for Hawaiian education. Um, you know, still, you look back at um, Still, it was up into the 70s. It was still illegal um, to speak Hawaiian language in Hawaiian public public schools. So, I mean, the, the ability for Hawaiians to be Hawaiian, even legally, is it, still pretty young. You know, prior to some of the work done by um, by our pupuna in the legal systems, it was illegal for uh, you could only practice your cultural your cultural practices inside your ahupua. So basically, only in the place that you live. So like right now, there's a lot of people speaking up to protect the mountain. Well, prior, before, I think it was uh, in the 70s as well, too, you couldn't do that. If if you didn't live in the ahupua of Mauna, where Mauna Kea is, then you could not speak to what's going on in the mountain. And so it was very limited. It's a lot of things. So we're, we're the products of all the hard work and the sacrifice of the generation before us to hold on and preserve and to continue and to to continue to grow and, and evolve um, still rooted in who we are as a people um, connected with this land 
So <laughs> it's um, and in reality too, you know, a lot of the people as we see who are making all these decisions and stuff, they're they're in the older generation. In some ways, um, a generation that was that was deprived. You know, that they were deprived from this type of understanding and learning in a lot of ways, you know, and, and even just in the time, you know, the science world has, has, has grown so much, and I always want to express that, too, you know, one of the big things we're, we're, we're labeled with is being anti-science, which is a foolish statement, because we've never, never challenged that the sciences are not important. Um, however, I just think there's maybe to be more important sciences, opposed to just the very the one that absorbs all the funding and everything from Mount Kea. When we talk about Mauna Kea, everyone just talks about astronomy. There's a lot of other sciences that could be pursued and um, developed and, and shared with on um, to help take care of this mountain, which really gives us a great example of how to take care of the world. And that's what a lot of us young people are are saying. It's like, you know, we've, yeah, we've evolved. Our science has got us this understanding that we, and, and balance with our cultural understanding and um, tradition, we see how the importance of taking care of our land. Um, so why are we spending so much focus on observing and uh, developing um, um, and developing con- uh, on conservation land, on sacred land, um, when there's so much more important things that need to be done? You know, we, we have toxic oceans going on. We have, you know, our, our natural ecosystems are, are withering away all over our own planet. So as we're spending all this time and effort to look out into outer space, you know, we're thinking, you know, what if you took some of that funding and focused on this place, on this planet, and, you know, support the sciences that are actually going to help continue life on this planet? Because thus far, we're, um, just looking, just look around the world, all over the world, ecosystems are, are dying off. Right. You know, people are struggling. There's so much... Uh, the sickness and stuff because the land is unhealthy. Well, so we're just calling for an importance of uh, really regaging um, priority. Lanakila, thank you so much uh, for sharing with us. Um, you have brought up some um, really, really important points above and beyond uh, Mauna Kea. And that, that is an amazing thing because for us to make informed decisions there's no question that we need to have a greater understanding, and you've shared some very powerful words and stories about once what was once, what'll be if we don't begin to take a closer look at the way we not only treat the Aina, but treat the entire planet, yeah? Uh, I think TMT is not just a Hawaiian issue, but it's a world issue, and uh, that's, that's, that's huge. So on behalf of Samajala Network Radio, we want to mahalo you for... Uh, calling in, uh, spending Mahalo. some time Mahalo with so Catherine. Uh, we know your time is valuable. We truly, truly appreciate um, you sharing your mana'o with us, my brother. We are are uh, very humbled by your words and by your dedication. Um, and, you know, promoting education needs to be followed by action, right? It's not just stopping, but it's right, also... Not just research to sit on the shelf. Yeah, act on it. <laughs> but it's something, you know, it's all about starting something meaningful that's going to have an impact not only on our aina, but on, you know, on, on the entire world um, as well. Aloha, right. uh, this is Pulinia. Um, what I wanted to do, because you've brought so much information to the people now, um, and for the first time in my life... 
Um, I, I do remember some of the protests that happened when I was a, a very small child up on the Mauna in the 70s. And um, coming from that, um, because we, don't ha we didn't have the communication that we do now, mm -hmm. the word wasn't out. It's in, not too many people know that the mid to late 70s, there was a big resurgence of um, the Hawaiian culture and trying to protect the Mauna even way back when. So this yeah, is an ongoing. It's, it's amazing, even even with the social media power now. Only even right before these people were still getting, hey, what is TNT? They had yeah. no idea. <laughs> well, with that, what we want to do is, I, I want to let people know that there are avenues in which we can do globally, in order to support this uh, this whole development going on right now, um, as far as protecting the Mana of Akea. Number one, Change.org does have two petitions currently in circulation. I'm not sure if there's going to be more, um, but if you can, look up change.org and um, search Mauna Kea or TMT. And also, there are going to be GoFundMe um, accounts being put up there, but keep in mind, you need to search for the right ones. Um, the Mauna Kea protectors and um, stand for Mauna Kea are the ones that uh, to me, have validity, which I, I've uh, researched as well. Um, but you can also contact your uh, local and state government, um, the U.S. State Department. Um, the Honorable Keith Harper is the admit, uh, ambassador of the United States to the United Nations. Um, and he is head of the Human Rights Council. And uh, we're going to be posting all of this on our Facebook and um, other social media as well. But um, you can also reach out to Governor of Hawaii, David Ng, um, and or your uh, local Congress of Hawaii. Uh, again, we'll have this all up on our, um, on our social media. But aside from that, first and foremost, what you can do from any angle, from your phone, from a computer, from anywhere, share this information. Look for your, the, the correct information on your Facebook, Twitter, Reddit, Tumblr, whatever you can. Share it. Raise awareness for this, um, this movement. And Malama that Aina, um, I, this is something that's extremely... <laughs> emotional for me. I know I can, you can hear the crack in my voice, but for the first time in my life, I have seen Kanaka Maoli globally band together and come together in Lokahi, which is what we've needed for decades, especially since leaving the Aina. So mahalo piho, piha to you and have mahalo a wonderful Lily. day. So uh, Lanakila, um, for folks, what would you recommend? Is there a website? Is there a... Um, a presence uh, online that we can direct our listeners to as well. Uh, well, I, I, when I know we have our, our one of our main Facebook pages is uh, Stand for Mauna Kea. You can follow us there. Uh, I know that they're developing a website right now. Uh, we might be able to go get, um, look it up. I think it's I think it's uh, Protect Mauna Kea. Uh, I remember is it dot org or dot com? I do believe we have Protect Mauna Kea dot com. <laughs> I gotta check that one. Okay, um, but that's that's some some good information there that you can continue to follow us with. Awesome. Once again, uh, we want to mahalo you for your time, your energy, your devotion, your passion, um, and uh, we appreciate you taking time to um, to talk with us on the Samoa Java Network Radio, my brother. Um, Ohiho and malama pono, brother. Aye, ohiho, mahalo.
Mauna Kea Now is sponsored by Hawaii, A Voice for Sovereignty, a documentary film by photojournalist Catherine Bachnight that explores the culture of the native Hawaiians and their connection to the land. At the forefront of the film are social, economical, and ecological issues that have developed in Hawaii since the takeover by the U.S. in 1893, revealed in interviews with grassroots indigenous people and scholars such as author Haunani K. Trask. The documentary's goal is to raise awareness of the issues faced by the native Hawaiians, which threatens their ancient and environmentally sustainable culture. Bach Knight brings this film to the world stage by theatrical release, screenings at international film festivals, and television programming. More information at Hawaii, a voice for sovereignty.com. Mahalo for joining us on our Sandwich Islands Network Radio Podcast. See you soon. Aloha. Aloha.